many people believed that it was a blunder, a huge blunder for me to go back to school. So you think about it, like, you know, you're, you work in tech, you're, you're successful enough that you get paid a, a, high, a large salary and, you know, you get stock options and all those are great things. And now I'm, now I'm going to say to you, I'm, I'm going to give that up, go, you know, become a consultant, go back to school, you know, and have that dominate at least 40 hours a week of my time. I'm going to teach myself the technology behind this thing called big data. And this is in 2003, 2004, 2005, when no one even knows what that is. Let's face it, when you work at Microsoft or when you work in the industry, you sort of get a point of view and you put blinders on that point of view. And what I was able to do in the middle of my career was redefine my point of view. And, and it was a great luxury item. People thought it was a blunder at the time, but it turned out to work really well for me. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Very good, thanks. Yeah, thank you for doing this interview. I appreciate you coming out to the Nextcast Studios. And <laughs> My uh, pleasure, really. <laughs> it's great. Thank you. Um, would you mind introducing yourself and giving a little bio, telling me what you do and about your company? Hi, my name is Stephen Papura. I am the CEO of Context Relevant. Context Relevant sells the only automated machine learning solution for Hadoop. But to put that in perspective, and one of the things that makes my job really fun, is that if you think about sort of the dream for people is that any person, you know, you, me, uh, any of the people who work for us, should be able to analyze data without hiring an expert to help you understand the statistics. And our product is living up to that dream. And we enable that for our customers so that they can get real traction on complicated problems better than even most experts can. It's hot technology. I work in one of the hottest fields in the world, big data, and uh, doing machine learning on top of big data and doing automated machine learning really puts us in a position where we're leading from the front, hmm. which has got to be one of the most exciting things that I could do in my life. What do you love most about what you're doing right now? 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I worked for a startup in Seattle that Madrona, Madrona Venture Group funded. And that startup was a big data startup before its time. And back then we struggled with how to build the technology that would do the kind of analysis that, our, that, that Context Relevant's current product can figure out how to do in minutes now. So just think about that, like in the course of about a decade, we went from having you know, struggling to do anything effective to being able to automate the process of figuring out what to do. That, and that's just, that's been a progression that took a long time, but it's the most exciting thing that I've done in my career. So let's go back to the beginning, the <laughs> early years. Okay. What did you want to be growing up? Um, actually, I actually wanted to be an analyst. I thought that the job of an analyst was cool because you could synthesize information in a lot of different ways and really think about problems and, and give people advice about what to do. Now, to give people advice about what to do, you know, I had to learn how to do that over time because when I was a young kid, one might argue that I was a little uh, annoying. I think my parents would argue that. But having that focus on analysis actually really helps me in my job because our customers are analysts. 
And being able to have that point of view makes me able to sit in the frame of my customers much easier than perhaps other people might. You can really see how the company is in a gr an extension of, of what I wanted to do when I grew up because we try to build products that make people better at doing, that, at doing analysis. It's awesome and even unusual to be able to say that's what you wanted to do and you're doing it now and that's great. I didn't think I would be a CEO back then. And I think part of the reason was that I was sort of, you know, I was an awkward middle kid in, so, in many ways. Um, I played sports, but, but, you know, really I would prefer to work on computers in, in my basement. And, um, and so I never really imagined myself as the CEO, but I always uh, envisioned myself participating in strategy discussions. And so what I get to do now is, uh, actually it turns out, uh, was an awkward step, but one that I have fun with. More fun than I imagined I would when I was a child. Favorite computer growing up? I so I I love to this I love to say my Lisa was my favorite computer, but actually it was hard to program and actually hard to deal with. The AT and T PC sixty three hundred was actually the it was an IBM XT clone, so it had a hard it had a ten meg hard drive, a five and a quarter inch floppy drive, and um, and I learned how to write eighty eighty six assembler on it and really how to understand how to program a chip and make it do what I wanted to. And that was a lot of fun. That has to be the, the breakout machine. What did it look like for you getting into technology? What, what, did that, what was that path like? That's a good question. I think the, you know, my father worked at the Alcoa Technical Center and would bring me computers and that would contribute to my an innate desire to um, play with these things, figure out how to use them, how to make them work. Um, and that happened from a very young age for me. And programming computers was also sort of fun for me, but as my career developed, I sort of realized that being an engineer wasn't really what I was meant to do. Figuring out how to make products better was something that I was better at than many of the people around me. And, and so I naturally gravitated to that over time. And so I became much more of a product person than hands-on engineer. When did you know? Was there a transition that you were like an aha moment? Like, hey, I'm great at product. Um, was there a transition? No. So I keep flipping back and forth between engineering and product. And the reason is that the only way you can do interesting new things and really explore the space is to get in and do it. And so when, what you saw when I went back to do my PhD was really an effort to really dig in and understand how the technology works so that I wasn't an empty suit, you know, program manager telling people what to do when I didn't really know or understand the technology. If you do not understand it, it is very difficult to lead a team effectively to get the most out of it for people. And so one of the reasons that I went back to, to school, you know, as a 30-year-old as was to really enhance my understanding and immerse myself in the in the tech, so. What was the most interesting thing that's happened to you in your career, and, and what did you learn from it? <laughs> uh, I was actually talking about this with someone the other day, uh, Jim Walsh. Jim Walsh is the VP of engineering at, at Context Relevant, and we were talking about what stories we would tell from our, our youth in tech. And uh, it turns out that the vast majority of the stories we would not tell <laughs> in, in public. And, and so, and the, the context for having that discussion was talking about the difference between Microsoft and context relevant. 
in my career, I think the funnest things I've done were the things where I sort of, I believed I knew what the right thing to do was. And if I worked in a big company, someone would try and stifle that. Someone would, would say, I'm not certain that that's the right thing to do or show me more data. I have a great example story from a technical assistant to one of the senior execs at Microsoft who, who asked me once whether we had done enough focus group testing to determine whether Windows should boot faster. And uh, I sort of looked at him and I made a really snarky comment, which was, yeah, we went down to Apple's parking lot and we asked 10 people whether they thought that Windows should boot faster and they all said no. And so in my early part of my career, I would say things like that. But, but more to the point, um, I think that the funnest things that I've done are where I had an idea about what we should do and I took risks to achieve them. And at Context Relevant, we encourage people to do that. We give them the flexibility to uh, make mistakes or to try new things. And at, at bigger companies, I sort of felt stifled that you couldn't, you had to listen to what someone else said or someone else was really in control. And that's the, from in the trenches or the, the big difference about how my career has evolved, I feel like I get more ability to sort of be my inner uh, child in the sense that I get to you know, do what I want, uh, but as long as I can back it up and actually make it happen. So you've been really wanting to be an entrepreneur for a long time. It turned, and many people have been telling me that I should go do my own thing because when I get the notion that I'm right in my head, I just do that nothing but, I want to do nothing but that. Hmm. You know, if you think about the story of Context Relevant, it's an overnight success story that took 13 years. 13 years ago, I sort of got in my head that this was the direction that we should, that was naturally going to happen. And I decided to try and prepare for it. And, you know, 13 years later, I, uh, it's turned out to be the right thing for us. If you were to go back to the start of your career, what advice would you give yourself? That's a, it's easy in one respect. I would tell myself it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm -hmm. Um, I think all of us, when we're in our early 20s, think that everything has the urgency of now that, you know, everything from promotions to, um, to thinking about what has to be done or the time scale seems compressed. These days, I think more about what's the right long-term decision. What's the right thing to do for the long term when the long term is 5, 10, 50 years? It's a just much larger time horizon. What about any disasters in your career that you faced and any lessons no, learned? No, great question. So many people believed that it was a blunder, a huge blunder for me to go back to school. So you think about it like, you know, you're, you work in tech, you're, you're successful enough that you get paid a, high, a large salary and you know you get stock options and all those are great things. And now I'm, now I'm going to say to you, I'm, I'm going to give that up, go you know, become a consultant, go back to school you know, and have that dominate at least 40 hours a week of my time. And uh, I'm going to teach myself the technology behind this thing called big data. And this is in 2003, 2004, 2005 when no one even knows what that is. And uh, a lot of people I know thought that that was a huge blunder, that I should just continue to work in different jobs and eventually work my way into it. And I, I disagreed at the time, and I think I was right. I would never have learned as much as I did by spending time at Harvard, spending time at Cornell, working with industry experts who really were at the cutting edge mm. 
to teach me enough about what was going on so I could develop a big picture of that was not tainted by the industry because let, let's face it when you work at Microsoft or when you work in the industry you sort of get a point of view and you put blinders on that point of view and what I was able to do in the middle of my career was redefine my point of view and and it was a great luxury item people thought it was a blunder at the time but it turned out to work really well for me hmm. what do you think the age cutoff is my, here's my statement on that you can continuously educate yourself to change directions in your career I may have spent a few years too long in graduate school I think that with the current shifts in education where you can get more information from from things like uh, MMORGs or whatever I mean the that stuff is going to enable you to make small shifts yeah but having said that, there was real value in immersing myself with the professors at Harvard and Cornell. It had a real impact on me that I don't think it would, it would be easy to explain. And so in some sense, the 30s really is the greatest time to do it. You've got the, the, the 20s as the years of experience to give you some kind of grounding of what, how the world works. And then you can completely shift that point of view in your 30s and come back and maximize your peak earning years. So if there was a better way to do it, um, it would be by setting yourself up in lots of different projects where you intentionally got access to very smart people who are on the leading edge to help train you in different ways. Hmm. It's been a few years since you've been out of school. How do you stay up on, on everything? What do you do to, to keep that edge? Okay, great, so great question. So first of all, so context relevant employees a number of different people with PhDs, um, including a current professor at Stanford. So he does not work for us full time, but we talk to him every month about innovations in, in our space. And he directly contributes to helping us think through issues that we're having with the product. And, and everything we do at Context Relevant is actually more advanced than the existing research in our field that's being published. Many of the people on our team have written academic papers for years because mm. it's part of the publishing process as part of our, you know, as part of being an academic. And um, each one of us looks at what we do each day and says, oh, that could be a paper. You know, that could be a paper. And, uh, and so in many ways, we, we keep in touch both by reading the academic literature to help us ground what we're doing, by interacting with the people in academia who are part of our team, and by... Uh, advancing our state-of-the-art beyond what they're doing in academia right now. So around, around our core technology, that's what we do. Around the market itself, a lot of the research for that comes from um, you know, companies that conduct research and give us some inkling about what it is that a, a people are doing broadly across the industry, and that information is valuable in a different mm -hmm. way. And then thirdly, just interacting with customers. So frankly, the the people who are interested in buying our product, many of them are trying to do things that have never been done before, that have that literally could not be done by computers before. And, and so we get to work on those things, and each one of them could be a paper uh, on its own because we've done something that people don't know how to do. So it's all, that's all fun stuff, fun stuff for us. Can you talk about the most interesting use case? In general, I can talk about two things. That one, the, the thing we're doing today and then the thing that we'll do 10 years from now that's even more impressive. Okay, so today, if you think about Wall Street, Wall Street is considered one of the places where 
high-speed advanced analytics are part of every company. It's a competitive weapon, and, and they invest heavily in it. But despite that, most of the work goes into analyzing what I'm going to call homogeneous data. It's basically you know, transactions. I did, I did a trade of 50 shares of Dell stock today. I did a trade of 100 Dell shares of Dell stock yesterday. You know, let's look at what everyone in the market did in terms of trading and then analyze that. Mm. It's mostly homogeneous. And so the exciting thing that we're doing on Wall Street is we're doing analysis across heterogeneous data. So multiple data sources. And, and so let me talk about, let me give you a real example. When, if you traded 20 shares of Dell stock today, that happened, that would get stored in a SQL database and the transaction would say, you know, the volume was 20, the price was, you know, whatever it is per share. Um, and that would be it. It would say, you know, the time that it took place, but not much else. Our technology can actually add context to that transaction mm -hmm. to look at it and say, that transaction occurred in a situation where the volatility in the market was X. That other individual investors like Jeff were either not buying or selling Dell or buying Dell, okay? One of those, one of those three conditions was occurring, okay? Institutional investors were either buying or selling Dell. All of that information can be annotated on the record to give it more context. Once you do that, you open up an entirely new type of analysis on the data. And interestingly enough, doing that operation actually makes our product faster. And so it allows you to analyze even more information than you could before by making certain that all of the transactions have their context integrated within them. This is what formed the name for our company. but. The core technology that we had to develop to make that possible was an engine that could support heterogeneous data. That hasn't really existed in the marketplace at scale. And that's one of the things that we do today. And 10 years from now, that will contribute, that technology, whether it's from us or from someone else, will contribute to doing something called finding composite biomarkers to allow personalized genetic testing of diseases that you have so that you can fight them on an individual basis. Medicine has become or will become a computational problem that a platform like ours can solve. And so when you look at the short term, it's exciting to work at Context Relevant because we have this incredible platform for solving business problems. And in the long term, we have one of the greatest technology platforms for advancing human knowledge. What's it like being a leader in the field? Like, how do you do? You, do you have advice for other folks in technology about kind of being in that that cutting edge space? Because you're you're kind of paving paving a way where like customers I work with don't even know what they what data they want. Like, let alone how to do an analysis on it and and how to do anything. Right. So the biggest reality dose of reality I get is visiting a customer and listening to them, to them tell me what they want to do. And so the fun thing about our technology is it advances over our roadmap, is that you can take customers who don't know how to express what they want to do, or how to do the process of taking data and doing analysis on it, and you can just have them feed it into our system like they feed it into Excel or into MySQL or into SQL Server. And and then give it a notion for what the goal is, 
and then our system basically works automatically. And and that's right now that may be a little more aspirational for some problems for us, but that's clearly where we're going. If every business thinks that their problems are unique in some way, it turns out that's not really true. And if you think if you really think about it, you'll you will agree. Every business has again this set of transactions that they've collected about sales. They've got some notion of the market of factors that are happening in the market. They may have some notion of inventory. Even a website has inventory, it's pages. The trick is understanding for that business which thing is the inventory, which thing is the transactional buy, which thing is the what's a customer defined as understanding the behavior of a customer from buying through consuming. As long as you can teach our software, as long as our software can learn how to match those things up, it can start to compute things automatically for you. Essentially, our roadmap is use machine learning to figure that out. Figure out how the schema is laid out. Use it to figure out everything. Because if you give it enough examples, it will learn. You hear people talk about the consumerization of IT. I'm mm -hmm. sure you hear this all the time. Um, it's not just that. It's the auto-configuration that's possible when you, have, when you couple consumerization with machine learning. And so that's the piece that long-term will be a huge competitive advantage for us um, and, and really will automate the experience of analysis for people who are currently struggling with I have a bunch of data, but I don't know what to do with it, and mm -hmm. I'd love it to use it to make more money. And so those are the customers we love to engage with because we show them how they can do it. Yeah. I wish the customers would understand the sooner that they adopt this, the better their data <laughs> is going to be, right? Because yeah. it's, it's a predictive analysis on, on top of predictive analysis ongoing. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, convincing them to start yesterday. So it's a double-edged sword, and let me talk about why. The number one problem we have with customers is that they may not have the operational wherewithal to engage with us to actually do it. So this is one of the selection criteria that we use when we choose who to work with. Um, it, it's non-trivial to think about data as an asset and how you're going to build on that asset. You have to have imagination um, to see that there is huge potential, even if you don't know how to get there. And then you have to say as a management team, we are going to figure out how to get there. If management doesn't lead on that, the organization will not be successful in the short term. Most, most, you know, they may, some get lucky. I mean, some do it in spite of themselves. Some get, some have people like me who work inside their organization who, who latch on to the calf of the, uh, of someone in the organization and sort of drag them to make money from data. But management really is the difference between companies that become great with data and those that lag behind. Do you have any books that come to mind that have made a big impact on your career? Uh, Diamond Age by local author, um, I'm spacing on his name. But anyway, the Diamond Age was a, had a great impact on me because there's actually an instance of machine learning in the book. And the book was written many years ago, but one of the main characters, and I'm going to say characters in air quotes, um, is a machine that learns to interact with one specific human. And uh, basically it's a machine learning application. 
that's one example. Another example of things I've read that that have had a big impact wasn't a, it wasn't a book. It wasn't a science fiction book. It was a paper by. So I mentioned that I went back to school and so I could show up at Harvard and I'm taking these courses in economics and one of the first things I read was um, investing in the unknown and unknowable. It's a famous paper by Dr. Richard Zuckhauser. Richard's been a um, professor at Harvard for more than 50 years, and uh, I was lucky enough to be a student of his. And and if you think like a tech guy, you know most of your most tech guys are sort of isolated from the other disciplines. I I know I was, and uh, for the first time being forced to understand how to invest in things that, again, the unknown and the unknowable. It's like wow, there's a management framework for that. There's a statistical management framework for thinking about things that are unlikely to happen, but might happen. <laughs> Learning how that worked and how to put that to use in real life, big change in my life. Another big change. That was great. That was a great introduction to statistics. Do you have any role models that have made a big impact in your life? Uh, I've actually had, I've been lucky. I've had a lot of mentors. I mean, actually, Tim Porter, the partner of Madrona that works with me, helps mentor me as a CEO. But having said that, uh, I made the biggest shift in my life when I became a mentor for others. There's nothing that, in, that inserted reality in me more than thinking about, I'm going to give this person advice that they are going to base their career and life off of. It made me grow up. And so I think that the reverse relationship had more impact than the mentors had on me in my career. So how do you stay organized and on top of things? That's a great question. Uh, chaotic world, and, and I imagine you know, being the CEO of, of especially a big data company, you've got a lot of data on your mind. Yeah, so I wrote software for that when I was in graduate school, believe it or not. The, even though I wrote software, the, the number one thing that I, that I currently do is I limit what I read. So there's got to be a limiter. You know, you, you've probably heard the expression TLDR. And uh, a lot of my inbound email is TLDR. Um, and I just tell people now that didn't have time to read it. You know, give me the, give me the one paragraph version. Mm -hmm. And so part of the way I think about it is that be, being efficient at communication is one of the core skills that, that distinguishes people in, in tech uh, between being a really great player and, and maybe not a great player. As a startup CEO, if you're thinking about, if you're dragging your feet and saying, I don't know if I need an assistant, think about track for one week how much time you spend setting up meetings, traveling, setting up your travel, travel reservation, uh, reservations. Um, you know, so you need to change a meeting or you need to get somewhere. I mean, if it weren't for um, the people around me continuously trying to optimize my time, I would be lost. And in fact, when I first started the company, it was really difficult to make progress because you'd spend all your time doing that. Yeah. If you're a tech CEO and you have a startup and you can afford to have an assistant, do that sooner rather than later. Yeah. I think you can do the math around your hours. Yes, that's right. And, and figure it out. That's... It's an economic problem. Yeah. That's right. It's opportunity cost. So what do you think uh, three key factors an early stage tech company needs to succeed? So the canned answer is it's market, team, and capital. Okay. And I say that's the canned answer because all three actually are critical to success. But let me dig into market. So when I worked for a startup in 2001, we didn't have a large addressable market. We sold technology that would be useful if you had a 
Cisco router, which a lot of people do. But what we actually did with the data was only useful to a very small number of companies. And it was only, there was a limit on how useful it was. And so that was not an example of addressing a large market, mm -hmm. okay? And there's no way to fix that. Even if, the even if you have a fantastic team with $100 million in cash, it's difficult to fix the market, okay? Another problem we had at that company was all of our, co all of our customers were going out of business. They were telecoms and you know, in 2001, they were dropping like flies. Which is not again not a good thing for the market. Yeah. When I learned from that experience, and the subsequent experience where we tried to reorient the company towards a market that was large enough, is that it's hard to find an idea for a large market. And so, I actually believe that that solving that problem trumps all of the other problems. If the market is large enough, you can find some way to provide something to service it, even if you bootstrap the company on weekends. Hmm. If the opportunity is large enough, you can find people who want to work on it because it'll be easy to convince them that there's a huge opportunity. When you think about all the problems, if you have a great uh, big market and an idea of how to attack that market that would make it a big addressable market, you can solve all the other problems. What's the best leadership advice you've received? Wow. It's probably that, first of all, I have to be myself, no matter what, okay? You, I can't stop being me, all right? I can fill in lots of gaps in skills that I have, but I can't change who I am. That seems like an, up, that, that seems like an uphill battle that is not worth fighting. Um, so the best, I, the best thing you can do as a leader is identify the things that you're weak at and fill them in. And, and do that ruthlessly and unemotionally in the sense that you have to make certain that everything that's important gets covered and you have to hold your ego in check while that happens. It's a very difficult lesson to learn, but it's one that everyone who's a successful leader has to learn. And maybe, maybe that's not true. Maybe you can be an arrogant tyrant for your entire life and never backfill and you get away with it. I'm sure there are examples where that happens, but I'm not Steve Jobs. Is there a technology you would like to get rid of, if you could? Cable. There's cable? A, uh, yeah, I hate cable. I hate the idea of cable. I hate DirecTV. I hate anything that involves program, programming that I have to sit in some room and, and watch at a specific time. And then I have to deal with monopolies, customer service, and ugh. Yeah. Uh, who are two other people you would like to see on oh, this good, program? Good question. Uh, so one of them is one of my former students from Cornell who currently runs a startup called Vantageous. So first of all, this guy used to be a child actor. So he is an incredible presenter. He's basically the company was built on showmanship, wow. which has got to be fun for your viewers to see. And then the second, um, the second person, have you interviewed Trent Griffin yet? No. So Trent Griffin is a Microsoft employee. He's also a Seattle native. He's sort of a fun guy. Uh, to listen to him talk about strategy. Hmm. You know, he's a guy that you want to talk to about how to form a market addressing strategy. Uh, so I'll give you more than two. Uh, so Trent Griffin, um, um, Tim Novikoff, who's my former student. Um, and then there are actually a number of people at Madrona who have, who don't regularly talk hmm. to the press who actually have a lot of experience as operators. 
and the people who are the operators are the ones that your viewers really want to see. You want, they want to learn more from, from uh, the people who have done this 10 times, you know, done startups 10 times yeah. and live to tell about it. And, and so one of the other things that you'll get when you interview people like, who are CEOs is it really matters whether they were a founder CEO or they came in later. Mm. And the reason is, as a founder CEO, it's really unbelievably hard. Like it's un, it, This is the hardest job I've ever had in my life, bar, bar none. You are responsible for everything and there is nothing going for you, mm. believe me. Unless you're really well seasoned and you know, if you're Sonny Gupta, so Sonny Gupta, the CEO of Aptio, I mean, he had done it three times before. By the time you do it the third time, you know, hopefully you have much more backing and more, you know what you're doing, there's more. But when you're doing it for the first time, especially, and you're a founding CEO, you have to do so many things right that are not natural. And so when you talk to CEOs, when you get advice from ones who have, who sort of have parachuted in after you have a million dollars in revenue or, or 50 employees or whatever. That's a totally different um, experience than the people who actually started the company to begin with. And uh, that's another thing that I think that many people may not understand is that there are real differences between people who make great starting founding CEOs and people who, who, who bring it to the next level or the level after that or mm -hmm. And having lived through it once now, it's much, I can tell you that if you, I were to document something, that's what it would be. It's, you are, first of all, you are crazy. And second, um, and second, as a note to myself, there are really different skills that are required in, in the first 90 days, the first 180 days, the first 360 days, the first 720 days, et cetera. I mean, you, the, inf the, the way to write this book is to say, this is the mix of skill sets that's required in each one of these phases and why. No one preps you for that. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. Thank you for coming out here. No, my pleasure, thanks. That's been really fun, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Cheers.